Well, we are again tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So take your Bible and let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again for your word. We thank you for the precious treasure that we have, uh, that it is all we need for life and godliness, that you have given us what we need. And so, Lord, uh, not only is your word trustworthy, it is totally sufficient. And it is sufficient for living the Christian life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us as we go through this passage tonight, as we understand what you have to say about uh, divisions and strife in the church, what you have to say about walking in harmony, and uh, what you have to say about uh, living uh, the worthy uh, life for you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us this evening as we uh, go through it, that we would understand it rightly and that uh, we would diligently apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we thank you for the way you care for our needs, and again, we're reminded of how you uh, worked in your providence to provide heat for us and uh, uh, the natural gas and just uh, able to get these new uh, rooftop units, and what a joy that is. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. And that's just an example, uh, a powerful example, but an example of how you daily care for our needs. And every day we see your providence at work, and we are thankful for it. So, Lord, uh, bless again tonight, and uh, move in our hearts and minds as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Robert Robinson had been saved out of a tempestuous life of sin under the ministry of George Whitfield in England. Shortly after that, at the age of 23, Robinson wrote the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount. You know it. Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy 
redeeming love. Sadly, Robinson wandered far away from those streams. And like the prodigal son, he journeyed into the far country of carnality and sin. Until one day he was traveling by stagecoach and sitting beside a young woman who seemed to be engrossed in a book. She ran across a verse she thought was so beautiful, she asked him what he thought of it. It went like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Bursting into tears, Robinson said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings I had then. Of course, that was verse 3 of his hymn. And what Robert Robinson was expressing on that day was the same thing a lot of other believers have experienced as they have moved far away from God, which is a deep sense of loss. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has there ever been a time in your Christian life when you felt closer to the Lord than you do right now? If you are a born-again Christian and your answer is yes, you may very well be dealing with the same problem that the Corinthian believers were wrestling with, the problem of carnality. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the problem of carnality in the church. And although I do not believe there is any such thing as a carnal Christian... I do believe that genuine Christians can act and behave carnally. And that is what was going on in the Corinthian church. These were genuine believers, but they were having difficulty letting go of their former way of life. They were having a tough time rising above their pagan culture that surrounded them. As D.L. Moody once said, a Christian is the world's Bible, and some of them need revising. That is exactly the situation that existed in the Corinthian church. They needed revising. They needed some changing. They were not modeling the holy life that God had called his children to live. But we have to be careful about criticizing the Corinthian church, because we are not much better off today. Those who claim to be Christians in America today often live far below the standard that God desires. And of course, it is likely that there were some in the Corinthian assembly who were not genuinely born again. And that is the case, of course, in the modern church as well. But the ones I'm really concerned about 
are the ones who are truly saved, but are not walking the walk. And that has to be one of the most confusing and hindering things to non-Christians. I mean, how can a person be spiritually regenerated, having received a completely new nature, and having the Holy Spirit living in him, and yet still have some of the same old sinful desires? Biblically, you know this is what the Apostle Paul addressed in Romans chapter 7. It is summarized in Romans seven fifteen. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Of course, he's talking about the battle with the flesh. And I am sure you know this, but once you become a Christian, your struggle with sin is not over. There is a continued struggle with the flesh And Satan loves to use this to cause Christians even to doubt their salvation at times. The sarks, the flesh, is that part of our physical nature that is yet unredeemed. It is a beachhead for sin in the life of a believer. And the problem in the Corinthian church was that they were living and Behaving in a fleshly way, a carnal way. Up until now, in this letter, Paul has been referring to only two categories of people, the natural man and the spiritual man. In other words, the saved and the lost. These are truly the only two categories of people that exist in the world. These are the two groups that he's referring to in chapter 1, verse 18, when he talked about those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Only two categories of people. He mentions the natural man in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is the natural man, the lost man. Spiritual things are not understood by a lost man. And I hope you understand that. A large part of this world cannot understand why we do the things that we do as Christians. Why we would uh, take the time to come together and worship God. Or especially why we would come back on Sunday night. A large part of this world cannot understand our value system and our standards of right and wrong. But the spiritual man stands in contrast to that. In chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The spiritual man is the one who is mature in chapter 2, verse 6. This is a reference to a genuine believer. He is the one who is truly born again through faith in Christ. But now, in chapter 3, Paul is going to make some more distinctions. He is now going to distinguish 
between Christians who are spiritual in the sense of living a holy life and those who are fleshly or worldly or carnal, depending on what translation you have. So he's going to give us now a subcategory under those who are saved. And Paul's main point, which he began all the way back in chapter 1, is that this is the reason why there is so much division in the church. So we're going to see three aspects, three areas of division in this passage of Scripture. And our outline is very simple tonight. We're going to see, number one, the source of divisions in the church. Secondly, the symptoms of division in the church. And thirdly, the solution to divisions in the church. That's the outlines we're going to be dealing with tonight. Let's begin by looking at the source of divisions in the church. Look with me at verse 1 again, chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as to spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Notice He refers to them as brethren here. These are Christians that he's addressing. These are Paul's brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are in Christ Jesus, as he has said. They are saints, as he called them in chapter 1, verse 2. So it's important to keep this in mind. He's addressing Christians here. But he says they are sarkinos of the flesh, or dominated by the worlds. Now, we need to be careful here. Sometimes we use words in the church that we don't really understand. Worldliness is most often associated with sins of the flesh. And we tend to think of a worldly person simply as someone who lives a totally hedonistic lifestyle. We tend to think of Uh, worldliness as involving the three D's, dancing, drinking, and adultery, right? But worldliness is much deeper than bad habits or sins of the flesh. It is an orientation. It is a way of thinking and believing. Basically, it is buying into the world's philosophies, the world's wisdom. It is looking to the world, to human leaders, to influential and popular people, to neighbors, to work associates, to fellow students, to look to the world for our standards, our attitudes, and our meaning in life. Worldliness is accepting the world's definitions, the world's measuring sticks and the world's goals. Erwin Lutzer once said, worldliness is excluding God from our lives, and therefore, consciously or unconsciously, accepting the values of a man-centered society. Look with me at verse 2. For I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still, what's the word? Fleshly. You're still fleshly. Paul could not speak to 
the Corinthian believers as spiritual. They had come through the door of faith, but they had gone no further than that. Most of them had received Jesus Christ years earlier, but they were acting as if they had just been born again. They were still babes in Christ. Now, to clear up some of the possible confusion here, the New Testament uses the word spiritual in a number of different ways. In a general sense, it simply means the realm of spiritual things in contrast to the realm of the physical. When applied to men, however, it is used of their relationship to God in one of two ways, positionally or practically. Now, obviously, unbelievers are totally unspiritual in both senses, and they possess neither a new spirit nor the Holy Spirit. But believers, on the other hand, are totally spiritual in the positional sense because they've been given a new inner being that loves God, and they are indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. So they are spiritual in that sense, in a positional sense, but practically, believers can also be unspiritual, spiritual or unspiritual. Now, Paul refers to them as brothers, although he says they are infants in the faith. He was not passing judgment on their salvation, but rather was admonishing them to grow up in Christ. And the reason for the division in the Corinthian church boiled down to one thing. The Corinthian believers were still baby Christians. They were still spiritual infants. Paul says they were still on milk when they should have been on solid food long ago. This reminds me of what we have seen in our study of Hebrews. In Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Our faith is always to be a healthy, growing faith. And a lot of us, it really has to do with our spiritual diet. I mean, if we stay on milk, we're not going to mature very far. We must get on a diet of solid food. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with being a baby. Most of us here tonight were babies at one time, right? And we expect babies to act like babies, right? I heard someone say one time, a baby is a digestive tract with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other. Now, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? That's a baby. We expect babies to act like babies. And babies need milk, right? Listen, if you have a crying baby in the middle of the night, 
the first thing you do is you give that baby some milk. I mean, you don't go in and say, well, the baby's hungry. Go get some steak out of the freezer and let's thaw that out and broil it and give the baby a big steak dinner. No, that's not what you do. That's not what babies need. Babies need milk. And there's nothing wrong with being a baby and needing, a, a, needing milk when you're a baby. But there's something drastically wrong when you are an adult and you still need milk. There's something drastically wrong. Or if you're still acting like a baby. As one author put it, nothing is as precious or wonderful than a little baby, but a 20-year-old with the mind of an infant is heartbreaking. A baby who acts like a baby is a joy, but an adult who acts like a baby is a tragedy. It doubtless grieves the Holy Spirit as it grieved Paul that the Christians at Corinth had never gotten out of their diapers spiritually. And when we think about it, this is really a greater tragedy than even that of physical or mental retardation. Because they have no responsibility for their condition. But spiritual retardation is something of one's own making. So Paul is saying, look, all this time has gone by since you were born again and you're still on milk. You're still having to be fed baby formula specially prepared for you. No wonder there's division and strife in your midst because you're still acting like babies. Now, another thing that Paul is saying here is that you can tell a person's spiritual maturity by looking at their diet. It's okay to drink milk when you're an infant. But when you begin to grow up, you need to move on to solid food. And the more mature you become, the healthier your spiritual diet will become. Listen, folks, there are many Christians today who are still living at the milk stage when by now they should be on solid food. They should have graduated to something far more substantial in their spiritual diet. And by the way, what is the milk in the spiritual arena? What is that a reference to? Milk is the basic gospel. It's the basic message of how to get saved. Listen to how, to how the, the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The milk is the basic message of the gospel of salvation. And it's interesting because there are whole churches that never move beyond the milk level. There are some churches where the message that you hear every Sunday is the message of salvation, the message of the gospel and how to get saved. And that's all they ever focus on. Now, we know that 
every single message is, that is really truly preaching must end up at the cross and give an inv- invitation for people to come to Christ. But a steady diet of milk, the milk of the gospel, is not going to provide a healthy diet for most in the congregation. Because most of us have dealt with the issue of salvation long ago. We've got to move on to spiritual maturity. Of course, we know the gospel is a good thing. It must be proclaimed. But it cannot be our only diet. We must move on to sound doctrine and deeper theology. And by the way, have you ever thought about the characteristics of spiritual infancy? The most dominant trait of spiritual babies is selfishness. Babies want what they want when they want it. And they throw a fit if they don't get it. And of course, there are Christians in churches today who act just like that. This is often the source of division and conflict in the church. Perhaps an offshoot of that is that they have a self-serving attitude instead of a servant's heart. This kind of Christian may view the church more like a mall than a body or a family. They want to pick and choose what they want out of church rather than looking at ways God would have them serve in the church. So we see these characteristics of spiritual infancy. Thirdly, spiritual babies are always high maintenance. They're always high maintenance. I mean, how many of you mamas here tonight with small babies know what this means? High maintenance. You know what that means? Babies are high maintenance, aren't they? Spiritual babies are those who do the least but expect the most. They are often unreliable when it comes to service and stewardship. They are more concerned about being served than serving others. And they are often demanding. They have expectations about how others should be serving them. And then they get upset if that doesn't happen. And you know what I'm talking about. You've seen that in the church. Fourthly, they are quarrelsome and easily offended when things don't go their way. They're often unpredictable emotionally. It doesn't take much to set them off. They're often fault finders who sit around and criticize the others who are doing all the work. Spiritual babies. Fifthly, they're lovers of toys. Their motto is, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. They want entertainment instead of the meat of the Word. They have little or no appetite for sound doctrine. They have a low attention span when it comes to the teaching of God's Word. And listen, that's not because they have a low IQ or uh, they believe that the preacher is preaching over their heads. It's because of self-centered immaturity. And it often manifests itself in willful ignorance of the Word of God. 
Well, we'd better move on. We see these are traits of spiritual infancy. The source of division in the Corinthian church was that they were still fleshly. But there's a second aspect that we need to consider, and that is the symptoms of the division in the church. Look at the last part of verse 3. Or since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? How do you know when the church is full of carnality? Well, there are two sure, surefire indicators. Do you see those two words, jealousy and strife? And the order is important. Which one comes first? Jealousy comes first. And then strife. Listen, whenever jealousy comes into a family or between individuals or in a church, strife is sure to follow. That's the way it works. Jealousy and then strife. Jealousy is the attitude. Strife is the action. First there was discontent. You see, inward envy and jealousy. Then there is discord, outward strife and squabbling. Then ultimately there is division, which is full-blown factions and cliques. That's what happened in Corinth. Look at verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? This is where jealousy and strife ends up, in factions and divisions. The church at Corinth was all divided up into cliques and groups, each one following a different man. And this was something that was very common in their pagan culture. People in that pagan Greek culture often would line up under various philosophers and philosophies. And so this was something they were very used to. Now, jealousy and strife are not the only two symptoms of carnality in the church, but they are usually among the first ones to show up. And they're often the most damaging. These are some of the surest marks of carnality, just as unity is usually a mark of spiritual maturity. The more mature a church is, usually the more unity there is. So let's look a little more closely at these two symptoms. Jealousy is a severe form of selfishness, begrudging someone else of what we wish was ours. And selfishness is one of the most obvious characteristics of babyhood. An infant's life is almost totally self-centered and selfish. Its whole concern is with its own comfort, hunger, attention, sleep, etc. It is typical of a young child to be self-centered, but it should not be typical of an adult, especially a Christian adult. It is spiritually infantile to be jealous of and to cause strife among fellow believers. That is infantile. It always betrays a fleshly perspective. 
Division can only occur where there is selfishness. Where there is maturity, division is rare or even non-existent. But factions are a natural result of infantile jealousy and strife or any other form of carnality for that matter. When a congregation develops loyalties around individuals, it is a sure symptom of spiritual immaturity and trouble. You say, well, you know, the problem was they didn't have good leadership. Wait a minute. Do you know who their pastors had been? First, the Apostle Paul himself had been their pastor. Then the Apostle Peter had been their pastor. In addition to that, they had at one point Apollos, who was a great teacher and leader in the early church. No, the problem was not leadership, and it wasn't that they had not been taught well. The problem was they were still fleshly. They were immature. They had not grown up to become spiritual adults. Uh, listen, I don't do this very often, but listen to the paraphrased edition of 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. For you are still only baby Christians, controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous of one another and divide up into quarreling groups, doesn't that prove that you are still babies wanting your own way? In fact, you are acting like people who don't belong to the Lord at all. I think that's a, a good summary of what he's saying. This is why they were having problems of division and strife and cliques in the church. Anytime you see jealousy and strife beginning to develop in a church, you can know that it is likely going to end up in division unless it is checked. So what can be done about this problem? How can we deal with this before it gets to the place where it results in division? This takes us to the third point in our outline this evening, which is the solution to divisions in the church. The solution for division and carnality in the church is to get our eyes off of ourselves and other men and to get them on the only one who is worthy of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. As immature Christians, the Corinthian believers began to be followers of men instead of followers of Christ. Paul says that we all have a part to play in the church and none is more important than the other. But God is the one who gives the increase. He is the one who makes it all happen. I mean, look at verse 5. Then what is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave, us, gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. As one author put it, 
No man, not even the best farmer or best horticulturalist, can give physical life or growth to a plant. How much less can anyone, even an apostle, give spiritual life or growth to a person? The most that man can do in either case is to prepare and water the soil and to plant the seed. The rest is up to God. Do you know what my job is in this church? I'm a busboy. I'm a servant. That's what I am. That's what you are, too. We're all servants of Christ. I mean, look again at verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You know what? I have never seen anyone erect a monument for a common servant. But that's what we are. And by the way, the word for servant there is the word diakonos, where we get our word deacon. We're all deacons in this sense. We're all servants of Christ. And listen, anything that is accomplished in the church, as far as any lasting eternal fruit, is completely of the Lord. It's completely of the Lord. He's the one who produces it. We have nothing to do with that. Look at verse 6. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. Verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Look at verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. The church belongs to God. He is the one who's building it. We're just His servants. We're just instruments in his hands. Listen, the role of some in the church may at times seem to be more important than the role of someone else, but that is not the case according to Scripture. He who plants and he who waters are one. There's no need for jealousy. Every part of the body has an important role to play. And none of us, no matter what our role may be, can take any credit for the growth of the church. That's all of God. What do we need to do? Well, we just need to be faithful servants. We just need to be faithful to plant and to water and to sow the seed. And then we leave the rest up to God. He's the one who grows the church. I'm just a conduit. I'm just a vehicle, a busboy, a tool, an instrument for God to use. I am a servant of His. That's what Paul said he was. That's what Peter was. That's what Apollos was. And it's what we are to be. There's never any place for pride in any of us. There's never any room for boasting There's never any room for jealousy. And notice the last part of verse 8. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Let me just say a couple of things about labor and then I'm finished tonight. First, God rewards labor, not success. 
Far too often in the church in America today, we're more concerned about the appearance of success than we are about being faithful in labor for the Lord. But God honors labor, not success. And from God's perspective, He is much more concerned about our faithful labor, our faithful service, than in any kind of so-called success. Secondly, it is good for faithful laborers to be appreciated and respected, but not to be glorified. We need to be very careful that we never elevate any person to the place that only God deserves. We must be very careful about that. This is the Reformation doctrine of soli deo gloria, to God alone deserves the glory. He is the only one who gets the credit. Thirdly, although success is up to God, we still need to cultivate and plant and water. We still need to do our job. We still have a responsibility to be faithful in doing what God has called us to do in the church. We still need to be exercising, using our spiritual gifts to help edify the body of Christ. We should never have a Keswick view of sanctification, the view that says, let go and let God, that, you know, God's just going to move me around. I never do anything. I don't have any responsibility. I just put myself in neutral and God just moves me around. No, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. We have a part to play and we need to be responsible in that role that he's given to us. We are actively involved, even though he is the one who causes the growth. Now, let's leave the Corinthian church for just a moment. And let's think about Parker Bible Church. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Have we allowed our service to the Lord to become tainted by jealousy and envy? Has the cancer of bickering and bitterness eaten its way into our soul in any way? Has that sweet, gracious spirit of the Christian life become poisoned by strife in any way? How are we doing? Are we acting like adults or are we still drinking milk? How is our diet? Have we moved on to solid foods? I hope and pray that we are maturing in the Lord and that we're moving on to be all God wants us to be. I trust that we are. Let's pray together. Father, we pray again tonight that you would just use this passage in our lives. Help us to just to uh, be challenged to always to be growing in you and uh, that uh, we would not settle for milk in any capacity, but that we would move beyond that, that we would adopt a healthy diet and Lord, that uh, we would be growing in you so that we can be all you desire for us to be.
So, Lord, help us in that this week. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.